You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Barry Schwartz. He's the author of quite a few books, quite a few articles. I have two of his books with me right here. I have this one, which is among the latest. It's called Why We Work, which is fantastic. I listened to it on an audio CD and bought the book because the CDs got all scratched up, so I needed another a reference point. <laughs> and then another one of his books, which I really like, is, is Practical Wisdom. And this is one, actually, I read this in, in Galley's. We had a little seminar in the psychology department at Berkeley a couple years ago where we did a little bit of a close reading of this book, which was really a great experience where I got to meet Barry. And then he's got a book, which is probably your bestseller, right? The Paradox of, of Choice, which is in a box somewhere. I, I have it, but I couldn't find it. And these are all, all fantastic books. And I think if you read these books, you'll see what a wide ranging mind Barry has and, and how he really is, I think, an interdisciplinary guy. Really, I'm always impressed by how you're able to range so freely. And I think there was, a, I forget which article or book it was that I read where you recounted how when you showed up at Swarthmore University you know, with a background in, in psychology, you quickly realized that your interests spanned multiple fields. And it was really only after you started teaching that you really realized what you were all about and you really started to learn about wisdom. And it came from teaching. How would you describe yourself? Do you still think of yourself as a psychologist or are you more of a philosopher now? The thing is, I think probably I've always been more of a philosopher than a psychologist. And I played by the rules early in my career. I you know, got a PhD. I did experiments, had a lab, got NSF grants and all that stuff. But I've always had the view that it took me a while to articulate. I was not self-conscious about this early on. That experiments in the social sciences are really demonstrations. You're not doing physics or organic chemistry. And so you create an environment in a laboratory that is an oversimplified distortion of real life. That's the whole point of doing it in a laboratory. And then you get a result. And then you have to tell a story about what the result tells you about life in the actual world. And so you demonstrate that under a certain set of circumstances, X happens. And then the question is, what does it mean? And the answer to that question doesn't come just from the literature in psychology. It comes from an understanding of economics and sociology and sometimes philosophy, because people are very complicated. Human societies are very complicated. And pasting the result of a study back into real life takes a lot of work, imagination, and often you get it wrong. So I guess I might have called myself, in retrospect, an experimental philosopher, and I try to use demonstrations in a laboratory instead of armchair introspection as the starting point. That's probably true of every every scientific endeavor. There's the internal validity and the external validity. You craft a wonderful, it doesn't even have to be like experimental, it could be empirical, it could be theoretical, you create something within some very narrow constraints and you could do a fantastic job of that and then go way off track when you say, okay, now that means I've been to so many economics talks where you start with a whole bunch of crazy assumptions, you get this conclusion that follows logically. And then the next step is, and that's why we don't have to worry about inflation or something like this. Well, yeah, but there are two problems. One is that you can go way off track to making this next step. But I think even more significant is failing to appreciate that this is a step that you have to make. Mm -hmm. And I think there are too many people who think having shown it in the laboratory, their work is done. Yeah. And that's just not right. I was trained as a Skinnerian for reasons that I will not bore you or the people watching this with. But in the journals, the Skinnerian journals, they present their primary dependent variable, which is how fast a pigeon pecks at a disc or a rat presses a lever, and they would present the data to the third decimal point. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what do they think they're doing? To the third, does, does it matter if the rat's pressing the lever 19.731 times as opposed to 19.718? Mm -hmm. Who are they kidding with this? 
So there is this sense that the data, you know, you've done the experiment right. The data speak for themselves. The data are a piece of the world. Nothing more needs to be said. And that's just not true. In the case of economics, it's not the data so much, although sometimes it is, as it is the kind of formalism, the mathematization of a phenomenon that, as you said, starts with completely unrealistic assumptions and never bothers to peel those assumptions away and ask what the thing they've just shown will look like in the absence of those assumptions. There are good economists that don't do that, but there are an awful lot of economists where basically what they're doing is applied math. I think Keynes was the one that said economics is the science of model design and the art of model application. And those are two parts, right? Two very important and related parts of the profession. It's probably true for psychology. It's probably true for every other scientific discipline. But you often find that the, that those two parts are pursued by wholly different mm. sets of people. So the model design part is done by pointy-headed academics, and then people who have sold out and actually want to do something in the world, affect policy, say, take these abstractions and see how they... Um, play out when you have to decide what to do with the interest rate in a time of economic hardship. There's this old joke about the economist walking down the street and one of them says, hey, there's a $20 bill. The other one says, no, there isn't. First one says, yes, there is. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. No, there isn't. How do you know? If there was a $20 bill, somebody would have picked it up. Right. It's right. like- <laughs> Well, my, my other joke about that I like about economists is you've got this guy who, who's in a balloon, a hot air balloon, and he's sailing across the land somewhere and he falls asleep, wakes up and he leans over the basket and sees someone and he says, hey, where am I? And the guy on the ground says, you're in a balloon. And the guy in the balloon says, oh, you must be an economist. And he said, well, how do you know? And he said, what you just told me is 100% accurate and 100% useless. <laughs> Let's not be too hard on economists. A very good economist is about to be the secretary of the treasury. That's true. One who is not guilty of what we've been doing, what we've been describing. Well, and also I will ask you to talk a bit about kind of some of the limitations of economics, but I want to talk about, you mentioned you're a Skinnerian, and I think that a lot of workplaces are organized, at least the philosophy of a lot of workplaces is very Skinnerian, and it's built on a belief that you mentioned Adam Smith as someone who inspired this. I think that maybe requires a little more nuance, but the idea that work is the thing that we have to pay people for. And I think part of the purpose of your book, why we work, is to really explore all the different kinds of, of motivations. It is indeed. And I think you're exactly right about Skinner as the psychologist of the workplace, the psychologist of industrialization and specialization. I wrote a paper 40 years ago with two philosophers, colleagues of mine at Swarthmore, called Skinnerian Psychology as Factory Psychology. And the argument that we made in the paper, which is echoed now in the why we work 40 years later, is Skinner creates an environment. The animal is significantly food deprived. It's put in a box and it's got nothing to do, nothing it can do except press this lever and get fed. And lo and behold, under those conditions, animals press the lever like mad creatures to get fed. So the question is, what part of the world does this model? And the answer is it models the assembly line where people come in and do the same thing. They press their metaphorical lever over and over again, hundreds of times an hour, thousands of times an hour, and they do it for a wage. Why else would any sane human being do that work except to get paid? But it doesn't follow from that. You know, if you give people work to do that no sane person would do, of course the only reason they'll do it is to get paid. But is that the way work should be? Is it possible to design workplaces that are not like assembly lines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? All of that was really invisible. And Adam Smith, I'm hard on Adam Smith, harder than I should be, because Adam Smith was a complicated thinker who had more than one idea. The model of the assembly line, the pin factory, is a model of how to increase efficiency, which it is, and essentially says, is anybody going to want to do this work? No. But then he says, there's no work that people want to do. And that was his mistake. He didn't think it was true of people like him. 
that there wasn't any work that people wanted to do, but he probably did think it was true of the peasant class. And so if they're not going to want to show up, no matter what the work is like, why not create a workplace that's maximally efficient and just, you know, dangle carrots to make sure that they bust their asses to get the work done. So that was his mistake. In a sense, the, the notion of work is endogenous. It's a bit circular. If It's not that people don't want to do work. It's that they describe they, they use the word work to attach to the things that they don't want to do to some extent, right? That they don't want to do. There is some of that. Yeah. People do need to make a living. People do need to get paid. But that doesn't mean that's the dominant yeah. motivator for people when they have jobs that are respectable jobs for people to have. But I think that if you think of scientific management, Frederick Taylor as being continuation of that and the idea, you know, time motion studies, in a way it's profoundly unscientific, right? I think what we're seeing now is that HR and the people who are really interested in the workplace, particularly here in, in Silicon Valley, where the workforce is, is so competitive, where they're, they're really thinking seriously about how you, you know, get people motivated, give them purpose and so forth. That's generated an entirely new kind of uh, workplace science. But new and yes and no, it seems to me, and I try to suggest this in, in the book, there's a kind of default ideology that is really hard to kill. So the sort of Tayloristic scientific management approach is the dominant approach. And then organizational behavior types, management types come up with a new idea. And it might be in the 1930s. No, 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 no. We want people to have more autonomy and more discretion and get meaning out of their work. And it captures the imagination of the executive class. And it lasts for a while, but then it fades away. And it doesn't fade away to be replaced by something new. It fades away to be replaced by the old standard, which is that people work for pay. And then 20 years later, there'll be another version of this enlightenment attitude toward work with different terminology and slightly different techniques. And it captures everyone's fancy and it lasts for a little while and it fades away to be replaced again by the default. Right now, you're right. There's an enormous concern for making workplaces where people want to be, and this time it may last. I'm encouraged in my experience. I spent my whole career teaching undergraduates, and then I came in retirement to teach at Haas, and it is really inspiring to me that so many of the students I interact with want to do work that matters. I think mostly take it for granted that whatever they end up doing, they will be well compensated. Mm -hmm. They're the cream of the crop, but they will not work for pay. The pay is presupposed and they want to do work that makes a difference, broadly understood. And from what I read, this seems to be especially true of women. Women want meaning and purpose in their work. And so if you are running a company and you want to recruit the best people, you can't do it by dangling stock options. You just can't. They won't work for you. They'll work for somebody who also gives them some stock options, yeah. but for whom they feel at the end of the day, they don't have to take a shower and scrub the grime off their souls. Well, And, and this gives rise to this trend. And I don't think it's an uncomplicated trend. I think there's some very interesting contradictions in this trend, if I can use that term, which is kind of the consumerization of work, right? So the folks that I talk to in the HR space, they've come up and I spent a lot of time talking to them about this idea is that you have to view your employees as consumers, right? And so if you believe that the customer is always right, and we'll talk about why that's not true, but if, if you think that the customer is always right, then uh, rather than taking this narrow view that the people who are buying the product are your customer and you think well, anybody we interact with is a customer, right? Our, our bankers are our customers, our suppliers are our customers, and most importantly, and our third-party software developers are our customers. And, and most importantly, our employees are our customers. If you think of it that way and you realize that every day that they show up for work, they're effectively like buying the product, so to speak, with their time. And you apply some of this, all this marketing genius that you've developed for the purpose of convincing people to buy your product, to, to convince people to every single day buy their employment, then it really does force them to think seriously about what the employees want. Now, whether or not what they want lines up with what is best for them or best for society is a separate question, but there does seem to be that kind of consumerization of work happening right now. That unfortunately is not, it's probably better to have people who manage companies 
have that attitude than the attitude that the people who work are just interchangeable parts, an efficient locomotive of an operation. But I don't like to think of workers as consumers of the product, which is what they're doing at work. I don't like that much either. I really think the question is, why does this enterprise exist? Does this enterprise have a reason for existing? To what extent does this enterprise add value to the world? And it is not tautologically true that, of course, it adds value to the world because otherwise it would fail. That's what an economist might say. The market is the test of whether it adds value to the world. Will the world be a better place in some way as a result of my enterprise? And you come up with an answer to that. And then you ask, what kind of work do the people in the enterprise need to be doing so that the enterprise actually does add value to the world? And so what you've got is not customers, namely your workers and you, What you've got is a collection of people engaged in a collaborative pursuit of an objective that adds value to the world. I like that way of thinking about it better than merely, in effect, trying to decide whether your workers prefer blue t-shirts or red ones as the official work uniform. Find me a company, you know, Facebook says they're bringing the world closer together. Google says they're making information free. Every TikTok, I'm sure, has a fantastic purpose-driven mission. But you can hold their feet to the fire about things like this. You know, my own take on Google, and I don't know any of the principles, is that you had two unbelievably smart people who came up with a way of actually putting all of the world's information at the feet of all of the world's people. That was their objective, and they achieved it. Who would have thought such a thing possible? and changed the world, dramatically changed the world, far more than Apple did, far more than Facebook did, and God knows far more than Twitter did, completely changed the world. And then the question is, is the enterprise still true to that mission? And I think reasonable people can disagree, or you can say, well, in some respects, yes, and in some respects, no. And when you ask, how do we monetize this thing, and it ends up the way you monetize it is by making the user the product, then maybe people could argue it's it's gone astray and it needs to be brought back to some version of the original mission. I don't think that the founders had in mind that they were going to become mega billionaires. I think they wanted to give something of unbelievable significance to the world and they thought they knew how to do it. But then, you know, it becomes a company and all of a sudden other considerations come into the picture. And for me, the the sort of tipping point, the concern is when it used to be obvious what was an ad and what was a hit. And as the advertising model got more and more sophisticated, the difference between ads and information got harder and harder to discern. You actually had to be paying attention when you Googled something to separate the informative hits from the advertising hits. It wasn't that way in the beginning. It got more and more unobtrusive what was an ad over the years, which arguably is a sign that they lost their way. It's very hard to have a really noble objective, noble mission, and then stay true to it, honor it as an enterprise develops, especially when you hand it off to the successor generations who may not have been inspired by the vision that got you going in the first place. That's why I'm incredibly impressed with the way that Jimmy Wales and the Wikipedia bunch, near as I can tell, are as true to their initial mission now as they were when it started. And I think maybe the reason they've done it is that there was never any effort to monetize. It's a collection of volunteers and a handful of people who get paid. Wikipedia could be better, but it's amazingly an amazing resource given free to the world by people who do this work out of dedication. So it'd be nice if all companies could stay true to mission in the way that it has. I think to go back to our friend Adam Smith, I think he would probably challenge the notion that would be possible for all of the the needs of the world to be satisfied entirely by even the few people that are motivated by altruism. And even if we were in some way able to 
inspire altruism in everybody, that they would lack the cognitive ability. And the, when we, we look at people who are really interested in saving the environment, and so they're, they're not drinking out of straws, and they think that they've somehow done made this major impact. But in fact, it's like, what about fishing gear? Maybe you should spend some time, you know, working on that. And instead of, I mean, I'm not using straws, so I can sleep easy at night. <laughs> Altruistic motivation might not be enough to generate the kind of value that we need to to make the world a better place. I think he'd probably say that. I agree with you. And as I said a few minutes ago, people do have to make a living. So you have to find a way to make the enterprise viable so that people can devote themselves to it and still have a roof over their heads and be able to feed their kids and send their kids to college and all that stuff. Yes, the trick is never to let the you want to make sure that the sort of concrete constraints managing to sustain a viable organization don't completely take over the mission so that they at least continue to coexist. And when the enterprise takes a turn in the wrong direction, somebody's paying attention and puts a rope around the organization's neck and turns it back to what it was initially intended to do. So I don't, I think you're not going to have saints. But I also don't think that you can incentivize your way into essentially guaranteed public serving enterprises. That's a fantasy. Well, there's also the concern about whether you call it greenwashing or whatever. I think that there are probably quite a few people who are participating in the real estate bubble of 2007 that thought that they were making housing more affordable for more people, or at least you know that's what they told themselves when they were cashing their bonus checks. But I, I like the point you make about advertising is, is an interesting one. And, and it could be the optimistic conclusion from that is that in order to get our attention, the advertisers have to really produce high quality content that appeals to us. And I think that the cynical view of it is that the people who are providing news or reportage have basically moved into more of the advertising world. And, and I think this takes us back to a point that I think you made in one of your articles a couple of years ago, which was you know, about psychology and how psychology went from a focus on the patient to a focus on on the client. And I think that, that you see that same thing even in the professions that had professional responsibility where a lawyer is, is no longer interested in doing what's best for the client and is really more interested in giving the client what the client wants. And the doctor is less concerned about healing the patient and, and is more concerned with giving the patient what they want, whatever, whether that's opiates or something like that. And journalists used to be in the business of telling people the truth, and now they're interested in maximizing clicks. I think that's all true. And in the book that you waved at the start of our conversation, Practical Wisdom, this is a point we try to make. Lawyers have two missions, as I understand it. One is to be a zealous advocate, and the other is to be a wise counselor. Now, I think those are both important missions. The trouble is that they sometimes conflict. Sometimes your client wants what you know your client shouldn't want. And so when do you take off your zealous advocate hat and put on your wise counselor hat? And what is it about you or your training that enables you to know which hat you should be wearing in any given interaction? And obviously the same thing is true with doctors and patients. In the United States, patient autonomy is the ethic of medical practice. Patients decide, doctors propose, patients dispose. Well, sometimes patients are really stupid about what they want. They don't understand or ignorant, not stupid. So when do you impose yourself and how do you impose yourself? This business with the vaccine now, the COVID vaccine is a case in point. What could be more irresponsible than a doctor whose patient says, no, I don't want to take the vaccine. I don't trust it. And the doctor says, okay, uh, let's check your blood pressure now. That's no way to be a doctor. Now, it's true you can't put a rope around people's bodies and inject them by force. Society doesn't do that. But you have a responsibility to help your patients want the right things. And lawyers have that responsibility. And teachers have that responsibility. And parents have that responsibility. So that's absolutely true. And, and it's a huge mistake to think of everybody as a customer. Yeah. I think that you're ultimately a tragedian because you point out all of the desirable things that are in conflict with one another. You know, one of the things that you talk about in your book is how wisdom can only result or can only be harvested if you move away from a world that is full of rigid rules, right? You need to have some discretion. You need to have some autonomy. 
But it's precisely that type of autonomy that can lead to this race to the bottom. So, I mean, the response that one would make to the bad doctoring that you're pointing out would be to have a a system of very rigorous rules that you would say to every doctor, hey, this is the way you got to do it. We've figured out that the vaccine works. We've figured out that your professional responsibility dictates that this is what you do. And and if you don't do it, then we're going to impose sanctions on you and so forth. But then that leads to a whole host of other problems, right? Where the the individual context is. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The argument we try to make in the book is that rules and incentives, if, if you can't specify the rules, then you make sure that people get paid for doing the right thing and they get punished or paid less well for doing the the wrong thing. We rely on systems of rules and incentives to make up for a lack of character on the part of the providers. I can't trust you to do the right thing because it's the right thing. So instead, I have to make it worth your while to do the right thing. If you deviate from the rules, you get fired. And if you follow the rules, you get a bonus fine. Now you don't need to have good character. That was Adam Smith's point in creating the assembly line. If you get the pay right, it doesn't matter whether you're lazy. Hamilton, same idea, right? I mean, if the world could be run by angels, it'd be great, but there's not a lot of angels. That's right. So you do need rules. The problem that we try to articulate in the book is that you have to understand that rules are a kind of second best. You can't create rules that are perfect. You can't create rules that apply unambiguously and without exception in every case. So you want people to use rules as guardrails, if you like, and have permission to deviate from the rules. But the problem with that is you want them to deviate in the right way and for the right reason. You don't want them to deviate because they'll make more money by deviating in this case. You want them to deviate because it's in the client's interest or it's in the patient's interest to deviate. And that requires a certain amount of confidence in the character of the people who are providing legal service, medical service. And in the case of journalism, which of course is top of mind these days, because the media bears, in my mind, a significant responsibility for the chaos of modern American politics. And it is precisely as a result of what you've hinted at or maybe said, which is that what you want is asses in seats or headphones in ears. And if the price you pay for that is uh, truth, it's a price worth paying. Better for you to be able to have a platform and once in a while have to fudge the truth than for you to be absolutely doggedly honest and be talking to an audience of nobody. So you make these compromises, but it's like the frog in the water on the stove. You make these compromises and then another little compromise and then another little compromise. And before you know it, you're boiling. And I think the media, with its cowardly insistence on presenting both sides as if they're equivalent in every argument, essentially gave license to people to believe whatever they made them feel good to believe. And now, of course, they're all being very critical. Not all, but many are being very critical, but they're critical of a phenomenon that they did a lot to foster. Think you get off scot-free from the responsibility that you hold as a less than diligent provider of information about the world. I think what you're saying is that the rules have to be co-developed. They're jointly determined with the character of the society, right? So the good society, right? If you fix the, the character, then you can design optimal rules around that character. If you fix the rules, then you can design optimal character around those rules. But, you know, those things are often dictated by very different people. And nobody knows how to design character. Right. So the character is the most difficult thing. You know how to design rules, but it's Jeffrey Pfeffer, who teaches at Stanford in one of his books, has this to me, incredibly insightful recommendation to enterprises. He says, you should hire for the attributes you don't know how to train and then train the attributes you do know how to train, which is, of course, not the way pretty much anybody does it because what that basically means is you hire for character and then teach people how to code instead of hiring people who know how to code and either hoping that or somehow imagining that you know how to create the character that you want. So his view is nobody knows how to teach you to be a good person. 
hire good people and teach them how to be good coders or good financial analysts or you know how to teach that. That's what MBA programs do. They teach you that. But nobody knows how to make you honest, empathetic, conscientious. Nobody knows how to teach that. Every parent tries and once in a while succeeds. But it's a miracle when it succeeds. Yeah, I thought you were kind of suggesting that that was the role of the teacher to some degree in your book. Uh, but that's not, you know, especially nowadays, I don't know anybody who's a professor of character. Do you? <laughs> no, I think we're supposed to incorporate it into everything we do, right? But it's never, even that's ne never yeah. said explicitly. You're supposed well, well, to teach biology. You're supposed to teach economics. Yep. You know, nobody's supposed to teach character. Well, the other thing is if you were responsible for it, it'd be hard to measure your success, right? I mean, with Pfeffer's advice, it's a good one to hire for the people who already have what it is you're looking for. But those things that are difficult to train are also things that are very difficult to, to measure in some objective way, right? It is true. And here's another problem. The key word there is objective. Yeah. So there has become, there's an obsession now with measurement. And I think it's largely to be able to show that your judgments about the people you supervise are unbiased. They are objective. I can point to the things you did poorly. I've been keeping track. Here's the record. The reason you didn't get a bonus this year is this. It's not that I hate women. It's not that I hate Latinos. It's not that I'm capricious. You didn't meet the standards and those other people did. And so the presumption here is that you can come up with a metric for everything that matters. And of course you can't. And what that leads to is the old, you know, the modern version of the drunk in the lamppost. You measure what you can and pretend that it's what you need to measure. That's certainly true. I mean, there's been quite a few economics articles about that, but if you can't measure it, it becomes turtles all the way down. Because if you, if you don't know how to measure whether or not someone is hiring the people with good character, then you have to essentially trust that the person doing the hiring has good character. And then you have to trust that the person who hired that person has good character. And we all yeah. know that when you, you ask someone to hire people with good character, they'll hire their cousins and they'll say, Hey, my cousin's got good character. And they'll hire the people of the same ethnicity. And they'll be like, these people have good character, right? This is all true. So I think the question that you have to ask yourself is what do detailed metrics and rules get you? And what we argue in the book is that it, they prevent disasters and they assure mediocrity. So what people don't appreciate is how much you give up by insisting on objective metrics and codified operating procedures. They think that there's no price for that. There's a huge price for that. And if you relax your reliance on those things, you're absolutely right. You can start having people who hire their cousins and give you a reason why, and the whole system will you know, go to shit. That can certainly happen. So you can make mistakes in judging my character. I can make mistakes in judging yours. Even if you don't make mistakes in judging my character, when I now get let loose in the workplace, I can make mistakes in judging the character of the people I'm evaluating. There's no way to avoid mistakes. But the notion that metrics and rules are error-free, that's the error I'm trying to get people to see. You have to be willing to risk making certain kinds of mistakes or else settle for absolute for me mediocrity and people mailing it in. You don't want teachers who teach the curriculum that they have been handed independent of whether that's the right approach with every student in the class. The teachers like that will fail. They won't fail in a dramatic way. Every kid will be able to add and subtract, but they'll fail in the sense that they won't come close to developing the potential that most of the kids in their class have. So you settle for mediocre, but catastrophe-free education, and you give up on the opportunity for really extraordinary education, acknowledging that when you give teachers discretion, they're going to get it wrong sometimes. They're going to try an approach with one kid that really is not the right approach. Mistakes are inevitable. That's why I think you're a closet economist, because you love to articulate trade-offs. We we're talking about journalists, and I thought you were making this plea for integrity, but elsewhere in your article with Adam Grant, you talk about how you can have too much integrity, right? Just about every desirable attribute that you can think of, just about anything which someone would characterize as 
a non-Aristotelian would characterize as a virtue is really only you know the raw material for virtue, which is a balancing of these desirable attributes. Which is why we think Aristotle thought that wisdom was a virtue, because wisdom is what enables you to figure out how much integrity is the right amount of integrity right, exactly. in this situation or that situation in pursuit of excellence. So yes, I think that's right. I'm not sure it's trade-offs because trade-offs imply that there's an underlying metric that we can use to scale the magnitudes of the various things that we're trading off against one another. I find that highly dubious also. I have an article right here where you've got something on the x-axis. I'm not really sure exactly what it is, but it's uh, <laughs> got that inverted U everywhere. In economics, I like to joke on the first day that, you know, if you understand Goldilocks, sometimes there are people in the class that I guess they don't learn about this anymore because she's essentially a felon, right? I mean, she breaks and enters into this house and essentially steals all their food, trespasses in their bed and so forth. But the key lesson is that there's too much and too little of everything and an yeah. understanding if you, if you think that something is an unalloyed good, then you just haven't looked hard enough to figure out what exactly you're giving up. I think that is a fair characterization, but the challenge is that it's not a chemical formula. So there's too much of anything, but I wrote this book about choice and how there can be too much choice. So when I give talks about it, invariably somebody will ask, what's the right amount? How many yeah. different pairs of genes should we offer? And I say, here's the bad news. There's no answer to that question. Or there are many answers to that question. The way to find out what the right amount is to do the research. There's no reason to think that the right number of options with genes is the right number of options with mutual funds, which is the right number of options with TV stations, et cetera, et cetera. There is almost certainly a point where you're in the world of too much, and your job is to figure out where that point is for your particular industry for your particular commercial venture. So there's no shortcut to doing the work. There is a right amount and we find it out. And often we find it out. William Blake said, I think in the marriage between heaven and hell, he said, the only way to know how much is enough is by experiencing too much. Yeah. And I don't think it would have occurred to anybody 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, that you could ever have too many options. The world simply did not present that as a problem. And so if I'd been asked for advice 50 years ago about that, I'd have said, just keep laying them on. The more options you can give people, the better off they are, the better off you are, the better off the world is. And then lo and behold, I'd have been wrong because who could have imagined that you could offer people 2,000 different kinds of yeah. genes to choose from. I'd like to dig into that. You gave a talk last year that I attended and you talked about the virtues of satisficing. And so we can all go back to Herb Simon and think he was really doing a description of how people behave, but you were making more of a normative claim, which is that- Correct. That satisficers are, are happier and satisficers have more enjoyable lives than maximizers. And I think you, you made the point that the claim that there are distinct kind of personality types or that people have predispositions one way or the other. And I, I don't know whether you have a theory of where that comes from or whether that's a, a product of education. I think there's evidence that people who study economics tend to change their dispositions and characters somewhat over time. But the idea that the satisficers are happier, it's not because they have a smaller choice set. It's that they're able to endure that larger choice set than the maximizers and the maximizers are actually happier when they're presented with fewer choices. The way to think about it, I think, is this. If you're out for the best, how many options do you need to examine before you choose? The answer is all of them. Being out for the best demands exhaustive search, which is either impossible or completely exhausting. If you did an exhaustive search before deciding what movie to stream tonight, you'd never see another movie as long as you lived. So exhaustive search in the world we currently live in is not possible. Satisficers do not have to look at every option. They know this good is good enough. And you may have, you know, low standards with respect to some things and very high standards with respect to others when something meets your standards. And so you look until you find something that meets your standards and then you pick it and you stop looking. So in a world with limited choice, there's no particular benefit to being a satisficer because if the choice set is small, you can look at them all. 
But in the world we currently live in, we meaning people who live in affluent Western societies, now it makes a huge difference whether you have to look at everything or you can actually stop when you have found good enough. And I think this is, it's not only that satisficers are happier, I mean, they're happier with the results of their decision. Maximizers are always worrying about whether they left something better on the table, whether if they'd spent a little more time searching, they'd have actually found the perfect toaster oven instead of merely a very good toaster oven. And I think a lot of the fear of missing out phenomenon that you see in in young people, I assume you're old enough that this is not an experience that uh, tortures you, but it certainly tortures young people, especially in the age of social media. And the result often, I've watched this in my grandchildren, my kids were not just old enough not to have been affected by this so much. You know, let's get together and do something on Friday night. A half dozen people say, fine, what do you want to do? Let's wait and see what turns up. What happens if you wait until five to eight on Friday night to organize an activity? What happens is you do nothing Mm -hmm. because at that point it's too late to organize anything. So you're so worried that by committing yourself to X, you're going to pass up an opportunity for Y that you never commit yourself to X and you spend your life always uh, waiting for the perfect uh, experience to smack you in the head. This is no way to live a life. Right. So, I mean, I think, I think wise people will intentionally constrain their choice set, right? By It's hard. It's called planning. It's called planning, right? You know, you Well, yeah, but you know, it's become so cost-free to search yeah. in comparison to the what it was in the brick and mortar world, driving right. around from one multiplex to another to pick a movie to see or from one department store to another to buy a pair of jeans, it takes a lot of effort and time. And so you might decide I'm just going to buy the best jeans that this particular store happens to have and call it a day. But now it's all frictionless. That's why I think there's trade-offs and there's boundary conditions, right? You know, satisficers are happy unless they're in an environment in which being a maximizer makes you happy. And I'm one of these people who thinks that a trait generally has some function and maybe it's maladaptive. Maybe it's like the hygiene hypothesis. Maybe in a world where there were a very small number of choices, the maximizers were the ones that really got ahead. And this was a a character type that was really optimized for an environment that no longer exists. And now all of a sudden- That's possible. You know, because there are, there's def- maximizers certainly do, they do tend to um, push boundaries and tend to discover things that, that others don't discover. I, I would argue that we think about these echo chambers, like the dark side of, of satisficing, right? It's the dark side of just limiting your search. You just look at the people that agree with you and then you say, I'm not going to explore beyond this little comfortable- cocoon that I've established for myself, right? Yeah, but that's a caricature. That's one version of what satisficing can be. There's a whole other argument to have about what standards are the right standards. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this field, but back from my animal learning days, there was an approach to behavioral biology called optimal foraging theory. I used to teach this stuff in a previous life. So a bird is looking for seeds in a patchy environment. How dense does a particular patch of seeds have to be in order for you to stay? And when do you decide to leave and look for a, a richer patch? And the formalisms say that what these animals do is they have an overall assessment of how plentiful food is in their environment. And they stay in a patch until the food density in that patch drops below the food density in the environment overall. So in a lean environment, they will pick up every goddamn seed in the patch they can. And in a plentiful environment, they'll abandon the patch as soon as it takes any effort at all. In other words, they adjust their standards to meet the environmental conditions that they somehow are keeping track of. Now, that seems to me not unreasonable. When you're living in a benevolent world, that's full of resources, it makes sense to have high standards. I'm not sure it ever makes sense to have the standard only the best, but it makes sense to have high standards when there are lots of attractive options that are likely to come your way and to lower your standards as the environment gets patchier. But there's a sense that in some ways it's harder to decide how good is good enough than it is to decide only the best will do. Only the best will do is a simple rule. Look until you find the best. Having 
high standards is more complicated because how high is high enough is a moving target and people have to use their judgment. I don't think it's effortless to be a satisficer. And I also think that when I use the word satisfice, what people typically hear is settle. Mm -hmm. You're settling for less than you might be able to get. Settle is not a neutral descriptor, is it? When you hear somebody described as a person who settles, there's an evaluation attached to that, isn't there? That's a thick description right there. (laughs) So built into the culture is the idea that settling is losers settle, winners aspire to seek out the best. And that's the attitude that I'm trying to defeat. When you talk about foraging, I mean, there's this explore versus exploit trade-off, right? And it's a function of environmental conditions. And I think at least in the business world, especially here in Silicon Valley, the mantra is that traditional companies spend too much time exploiting and because the environment is changing so rapidly, you need to be constantly exploring. I certainly agree with that. I think other things enter into that trade-off. You need to have a long enough time horizon for evaluating the success of your enterprise that you can afford to have a fallow period as you continue to explore. So I think that a lot of this exploit over explore is driven by short-term pressure that need not be there. One of the things that has always impressed me about Bezos, at least by reputation, is his willingness to be unprofitable for as long as it took to get the thing perfect. If I ran the country, I would put one person in charge of distributing the COVID vaccine. Jeff Bezos. And that's who it (laughs) would be. That's who Uh it would be. And you know what? We'd all be vaccinated in the next well, of course, as you say this, he just abandoned his healthcare initiative that he was doing with with J.P. Morgan Chase, realizing I read that, that healthcare I read is that. just. I, too, I didn't see much detail about too much why. of a mess for even Jeff Bezos to to figure out. But I think you've gone after the rational choice paradigm. I think in a couple of ways, and one is this idea that choices, that more choices, is always better. I think the other one is that economists tend to just take preferences as given. Their view of of humans is that they come out of the womb more or less with a preference map that is fully fleshed out. And and I think you're more comfortable with the idea that preferences are endogenous and are a function of the environment in which people find themselves. And, and I think that that's in some sense, a more optimistic view of human nature, that we have the, the potential to shape them for the better, although we're probably doing a better job of shaping them for the worse. And so I'd, I'd love to hear your views on, on teaching. You've been teaching your whole life. And just like healthcare isn't just limited to hospitals, teaching isn't limited to universities and classrooms. How do you think people can be trained for character? How do you think that, that people can be trained for well-being? How do you think people can learn how to be wise, learn how to adapt their preferences for the environment in which they find themselves? So I do think that preferences are not Exogenous. I mean, I do think your take on my work is correct. I think I don't want to blame the economists for this. Your theory of something doesn't have to be a theory of everything. And so acknowledging that what you're saying when you say preferences are exogenous to the model is simply my work does not speak to the question, where do preferences come from? Given a set of preferences, my work tells you how people are going to behave. That's a fair self-limiting characterization of what economists do, you rarely see them quite so explicit in acknowledging that there's a huge piece of this puzzle that they have nothing to say about. And I'm interested in the piece of the puzzle they have nothing to say about, which is where do preferences come from? I think that's a very complicated question to try to answer. Some of them, no doubt, are biological. Some of them are so pervasive in a culture that it's like impossible. You pick them up by osmosis. A lot of them are accidents of individual history. And a lot of them are the product of efforts to instill a set of preferences in people. Teachers do it. Parents do it. Friends do it. What the wisdom book tries to argue is that you can't teach people how to want to be good people didactically, you know, Like what I say when I teach this class, I teach on work, wisdom, and happiness at Haas is things I say is it's a huge mistake to have a course in business ethics because every course should be a course in business ethics. You don't want to ghettoize ethics because it should be part of everything you do. 
And I think that's the kind of thing that teachers need to be communicating. And the way you do that is not by giving lectures on what it means to be wise or honest or conscientious or persevering, but by exemplifying it. The way you show people what it means to be a good listener is by listening to them. This is like the, the apprentice, talk I think you. you highlight like uh, how the decline of apprenticehood and kind of mentorship and uh, the rise of formal no, training. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But, you know, here you are teaching and you have a class of 300 students. How well are you going to be able to exemplify the virtues of good character when you're giving lectures to 300 students? Who are we kidding? That's not the days of the teacher on one end of a log and the pupil on the other end of a log. Those days are gone. But there's got to be something in between one-on-one tutorials and one-on-300 lectures that are meant to entertain as much as they are to inform. And so I think you, by embodying the traits of character that you think make for an excellent student and a good citizen, that's the most effective way you have of teaching that character is by providing a model and giving people internship-like mentorship arrangements where they have permission to fail because the consequences will not be catastrophic and learn from their mistakes so that they the failures are less and less big and less frequent. And I think a big piece of the practical wisdom that you highlighted was the trade-off between empathy and detachment. And, and I think it's always hard to make grand pronouncements about trends and so forth, but I think th- there seems to be a consensus that empathy is, is in short supply and today's world. And the idea of you know, perspective taking is, is something which people struggle with. Certainly in my teaching, I've found it that students have a difficult time understanding positions that they have not themselves arrived at. And this makes conversation difficult, makes debate difficult. It does. But I think there are several reasons for this. But one of them is that students don't listen to other students. You're discussing a case in a class and what the students are doing when someone else is talking is formulating what they're going to say when they get a chance to speak. So they're not listening. Well, it's very hard to take the perspective of another person if you shut your ears when the other person is trying to present that perspective. So you have to teach people to listen. And that's that in itself takes a certain amount of courage because If you really listen to other people, there's a chance that they will change your mind and they may change your mind about something so important that it will change your entire view of the world. So it's risky to listen to other people. And so what does Haas do? I noticed this. I went for teacher orientation despite having taught for 45 years, thinking it's got to be different in a business school for MBAs. And I found out that most teachers evaluate class participation as a non-trivial part of the grade. A third of your grade, a quarter of your grade will be class participation. And I, and so this is standard operating procedure. And from everything I know, there could be a dumber thing than this to do, but I don't know what that is. This is the stupidest possible way to organize if what you want is for people to be listening to what other people say instead of preparing their own incredibly brilliant observations when they get a chance to speak. And you want people to speak when they think they have something to say rather than speak because they're going to get five points for speaking. It is such a badly designed way to use incentives that it's almost unimaginable to me. And so, yes, we do have a perspective-taking problem. And it comes because people go through the world with their ears closed and their minds closed. And you have to do what you can to wedge them open. And one way to do that is to show your students that when they say something, it changes your mind. You're the expert. But kids say something really intelligent. You go, right, I never thought of that. Let's see. Let's spin that out and see what the implications of it are. One occasion like that. Or just sit there with nothing to say. It's like, I never thought I have to think about that. Let's take this up again next class when I've had a chance to actually give some thought. Whoever does that. I guess it, it could be that we just don't know how to measure listening. So if we knew how to measure it, and we could, uh, you know, put a listenometer into people's, <laughs> uh, you know, brains and, and we could see whether it's in the green or the red, then maybe we would incorporate it into our grading. 
there is just very little actual value placed on being a good and serious listener. People care about empathy. Empathy is now officially a good thing. They care about perspective taking. That is officially a good thing. And they pay no attention to what it takes to nurture those things. It's magic. Either you have the empathy gene or you don't have the empathy gene. And the notion that this is something that can be trained and trained with particular kinds of interventions is undiscussed. And I'll give you another example along the same lines. People complain that these kids nowadays, they have very short attention spans. So you can't give them big assignments. You can't say, read this 300-page book, because they won't. And so you have to find a way to extract the essence of the argument in this 300-page book into a format that's short enough that it does not tax their attention. Now, I think kids do have short attention spans, but how did that come to be? Has there been a genetic modification in the last generation? No. What's happened is that attention, the ability to pay sustained attention is a skill that needs to be trained and you don't train it by assigning TED Talks instead of articles. You do the opposite. You cater to short attention spans instead of trying to train sustained attention and say, what can I do if I assign them something long to read? They won't read it. You have to nonetheless, your job is to teach people how to pay attention, sustained attention to complicated things. And if you can't do that in one of the premier, you know, graduate schools in the world, where the hell are you going to do that? And I'm not picking on Haas. I, I don't think Haas is guiltier of this than most other places. So I think empathy and perspective taking and paying sustained attention are all aspects of character that it is our job as teachers and as parents to train or nurture and cultivate in the people we're ostensibly teaching. We can, we can tie all the loose ends back together with one final question, which is, you mentioned that companies ought to hire for the things that they can't change and look for characteristics they can't teach and they can teach all the rest. And, and you said, we can teach them how to code, but we can't really teach them character. But I think your optimism with respect to teaching character is, is, is still there. And, and so we, we can change it. The question is, is it too late by the time you get to the, the workplace environment? Is it too late or, or can companies also perform this role that would normally be done by universities, by, by parents, by community in, in one's formative years? That is a great question. I don't think it's about being too late. I think it's about whether companies have the patience to put in the time and effort. And the same thing is true in university. Do you have the patience to work closely with students? And I don't like train. I think a better word is nurture or cultivate because I think the seeds are there you need the right soil and you need the right nutrients and you need the right water and eventually the plant blooms under the right conditions, but it doesn't under the wrong conditions. Especially if they're only going to work for a year or two, which is pretty much how long they work for most companies nowadays. Oh, that's, that's its own problem. So I don't think it's about you're passing the critical period. I do think it's about the absence of the right kind of structural commitments on the part of uh, enterprises that might allow the cultivation of character to occur. I at least don't see this kind of patience in people who run businesses. Well, I do think that people are continuing to see and people are continuing to learn even after they leave school and podcasts or and online education are one way. But I'll end with this, this one thought that I think I read in, in one of your pieces, which is that the idea of a psychologist treating a patient at one point turned into treating a client. And then and I think you argued that, that uh, neither one of those is really probably the, the best approach. Better to think of the person on the other side as the student. And uh, to think of it as really an opportunity, if, if you have some kind of expertise in psychology or another discipline, it's incumbent on you to share it and to help others see the, the knowledge that you have and, and to take on the wisdom that you have. That's the, that captures my view precisely, I would say. But I, wanna, I don't want everyone to walk away from this guilty. It takes the right conditions. You can't always be a teacher. You can't be a teacher in an environment that doesn't take what it means to be a teacher seriously. And most for-profit enterprises are environments that don't take what it takes to be a 
teacher seriously enough to enable people who have enormous amounts to give to be able to actually give it. So don't beat yourself up for failing. Sometimes you're in a, a situation where it's impossible Barry, to succeed we'll at teaching. Barry, thanks. This, this has been great. I think we could probably talk all day and hopefully we'll meet at that mythical faculty lounge and keep talking. But <sighs> you're a rare interviewer who actually reads the things that the person he's interviewing well, has, has written. Well, I highly recommend to everybody that they check out your books and Thank you know, you so much. get plenty of good quality research that, that hasn't yet made it into a book and hopefully will at some point. So thanks so much for coming. And thank you, Greg. Thanks for thinking of inviting me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.